0: Every person here today and those listening on podcast could probably name a book or two that touched or changed your life in some way. A short list of mine might include Deeper Life in the Spirit by Hobart Freeman, 1978, Apples of Gold by Gary Sweeten in 1986, Where Do We Go From Here by Dr. Ralph Neighbor in 1991, and The Challenge of Jesus, written by N.T. Wright in 1999. But far and away, the book that's had the most influence in my life has been the Bible. The Bible is the runaway best-selling book of all history. Uh, right now, it's estimated that over 6 billion Bibles have been printed and distributed to date. Historically, it's been the most powerful influence on culture and literature, art, and civilization. My conviction is that today, as followers of Jesus, it behooves us to read, study, and apply the Bible the best we can to our everyday, workaday lives, something I've been trying to do since I first became a follower of Christ 38 years ago. It's to that end that this morning we're launching a new series of sermons that I've titled, Finding Real Life in God's Great Story." Specifically, we're going to be studying through uh, the book of 1 John in the New Testament. On my bucket list is the hope that over time, we're going to be able as a church family to work through every book in the Bible. Now, it may take us another decade or two, may have to hang with us for a while, but whatever time I have left in my preaching tenure, I'd like to teach systematically through the whole Bible. We just concluded our series through the Gospel of Mark and now we're launching 1st John. So we'll revisit this series title perhaps on a number of occasions over the next several decades in our church family. In 1st John, we're going to discover the Apostle John's compelling life theme of love. And we're going to come to more fully understand the place and importance and the tension between belief and behavior. In the end, I hope that we can gain a clearer understanding of our purposefulness in God's compelling story and that we can all grow to be more like Jesus and experience love and joy and peace and a a deep sense of contentment and satisfaction and ultimately more meaningful contribution to the people around us as we Occupy our spot in god's great story let's pray together Lord we're just grateful for the beauty and power of a brand new day, soundness of mind, and health of body that enables us to gather together. We thank you God for your mercy in our past and your providence in our future. Lord, come and be with us today. We know that your promises where even two of us are there you are, and so we honor you as the guest here today and not just in this room, but next door in Vineyard Kids, where they're learning to worship and grow and serve and pray for one another too. Lord, may we be different than when we came. Uh, Holy Spirit, bring your kingdom in all of our lives in the way you know we need. If it's encouragement or challenge or healing or conviction or some mix of everything, have your way. Put power on your word to our lives in your name. Amen. Now, you think it's strange, wouldn't you, if we were to go out for lunch after church today to Ivani's or Steak and Shake, and after we were seated at the table by the host, if I began to eat the menu. Not only would I have a difficult time chewing through the plastic laminating, but if I could, I, I just don't think it would taste very well. And that's because you aren't supposed to eat the menu. Rather, the menu describes the meal. The meal is what you're after. That's what you're supposed to eat. John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Churches, uh, was once quoted as saying, the Bible is not the meal. It's merely the menu that describes the meal. The meal is the real life that Jesus said he came For his followers to experience. John 10.10, Jesus said, Satan's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. So the meal is the rich and satisfying life that Jesus desires us to experience. Let's go for the meal, not just eat the menu. Now, to be clear, The Bible is God's inspired revelation of the origin and destiny of all things. 66 books, it's got 39 in the Old Testament or the Older Testament, 27 in the New, written by 40 different authors of different occupations in three different languages over a period of 1,500 years. And these 66 books unite to form one sweeping story about a king and his kingdom. And each of the 66 books has a part to play in moving the compelling, sweeping story forward. Each of them has a special role to play. They contribute to the story in a unique way. You know, think about them really kind of like the chapters of your life story. In your life story, some of the chapters just paint the setting. They provide history. Some are exciting and and adventurous, and and others are dark and painful. Some chapters move excruciatingly slowly. Others are explosive with activity. Some uh, are deeply treasured. Some chapters you'd just like to forget. Well, the Bible's 66 books are kind of like that. You know, they're filled with history and genealogy, Poetry, proverbs, songs, prophetic oracles, riddles, drama, biographical sketches, letters, sermons, and apocalyptic forecasting. And they're rooted in eternity in the past, and they conclude in the new heaven and the new earth in the future. But the Bible is, above everything, a a true and honest and reliable story of how men and women and children of all ages and all cultures have lived out their life in the context of a relationship with the living God. How they heard from Him, how they walked with Him, how they obeyed or ignored, disobeyed or questioned God, how they prayed, how they fasted, how they worshipped, turned to God or turned away from God, um, how they surrendered, how they resisted, how they succeeded or how they failed. Sometimes their stories are expansive, sometimes they're, they're short. All about how men and women lived out their life uh, as part of God's grand sweeping story. I like to think that the Bible is simply the book that makes the best sense out of life. That's what I tell people. You know, really, as you observe uh, people, human behavior, our, our desires and our bents, as you read personal histories and biographies, I just think the Bible is the book that does the best job at at making life understandable. The Bible is a grand sweeping story, and it's good, which is why I've titled this sermon series, Finding Real Life in God's Good Story. It's good, full of interesting characters, uh, all of which are far from perfect, by the way. Uh, Compelling plot, lots of mystery and unresolved themes, family drama, political strategy, murder, mayhem, uh, love and romance, all mixed together in a great story. But it's good. And, and, and better yet, it has a great ending. But let's be clear, the Bible is not a fetish or an amulet. You know, it it doesn't work wonders by its mere presence. It's, it's not like a, a rabbit's foot or a lucky charm that you can rub. Uh, neither is the Bible a record of chronological events. Actually, the timeline is somewhat confusing if you just read it straight through. The Bible is not a theological textbook. Uh, there, are, there are many subjects that are treated in an incomplete or even passing fancy. Neither is it a compilation of, life's, uh, of answers for life's perplexing questions. I, I don't find that the, the analogy of the Bible as an owner's manual is particularly helpful, because frankly, it's not a very good one, if that's how you approach it. After 38 years of reading and studying the Bible, I will say that I have still a lot of questions about it, to be honest. Uh, there are things in there I just do not understand. There are things in there that appear contradictory, no matter how we've tried to manage our way around them. Uh, and frankly, when people tell you, well, the Bible clearly says, I just warn you, like, just be careful. Because scholars who love God and value the scriptures as breathed out by God, inspired, the word inspired doesn't mean like you're overwhelmed with emotion, like when you see the ocean or a sunset. Oh, I'm inspired. That's not what the word means. It, it means literally expired, breathed out by God, as men under the influence of the Holy Spirit recorded it. But uh men and women who love God value the Scriptures as inspired and have a command of the original languages and original cultures, come to different conclusions on almost every subject in the Bible. That's why there are 22,000 Christian denominations, not to mention the non-Christian ones. Uh, You know, things like predestination and election and faith and works and baptism and the extent of Christian liberty and grace and the nature of righteousness and the person and work of the Holy Spirit and healing and God's promises and answered prayer and the divinity of Christ and what happens at the end of the age and is there a rapture or not and a thousand other things. People uh come to different conclusions. Now, please hear me. It's not to say that we can't know anything, <laughs> okay? We, we We can be certain of Jesus. The historical Jesus, we can be certain of, of his virgin birth and his sinless life and his sacrificial death and subsequent res- resurrection. I mean, these are certifiable her- historical facts. But, but on many other subjects, friends, the Bible just isn't that clear. If it were, uh, we wouldn't be so confused. As I age, I'll just disclose how I look at it. I know a lot less about most things, but I know a lot more about a few things. Some of the things I used to think the Bible teaches, I, could, I just no longer believe. I've seen things differently. And while I used to be quite sure in my younger days about everything the Bible taught, now I'm less sure on many, but I'm much more sure on a few. I'd like to have back all the cassette tapes from when I preached 35 years ago. (laughs) The bottom line is this. Please don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I just want to say, as followers of Jesus, we need to give ourselves to a lifetime of reading and studying and reflecting on and doing the Bible the best we can with the help of the Holy Spirit. Do that with an attitude of humility and teachableness. So as we prepare to study through 1 John, I want to suggest just a few things to keep in mind as we do this. Um, first, get a Bible or get a Bible app. Um, I suggest a, an easily readable translation. I might suggest the New Living, which is the one we're going to use, and um, You may consider Eugene Peterson's The Message Translation. It is a translation, for those of you who wonder. It'll help you understand the street language of which the early hearers of the Greek may have actually understood. If you prefer paper, get a Bible that you can write in, uh, that you feel comfortable marking in. We actually offer free Bibles here. If you don't have one, you can pick up one at the stage or at the info center on your way out. It's It's a free Bible. Uh, and you can have it if you don't have one that you feel comfortable marking in. In terms of Bible apps, it's really hard to beat the free uh, Bible app called Uversion. Uversion.com. Go there. It's free. It, you can get the Bible in about thirty translations, and it, it's really a great free app. And so, if you have, find another one, great. Um, but Uversion.com is, is really one of the easiest. Secondly, read the Bible with a pen or a highlighter or your app's highlighter tool or a journal or a notebook uh, at, at your possession to jot your notes and insights or questions, things that you're wondering. And then thirdly, I'm going to suggest that you read regularly. You know, find a time and place that that works for you, like maybe five days out of the seven in a week maybe a, a certain place in your home or your condo or your apartment or in your work cubicle or in your classroom. Uh, find a, a, a time of the day that works and try to visit that with some degree of regularity, maybe for five days a week. And then secondly, read systematically. Now, in general, I, I've suggested to our church family a Bible reading plan, the simplest of which is the one-year Bible. That would be a good start. You read a portion of the Old and New Testament, a portion of a Psalm and a Proverb every day. That might be a little too much for some of you, so pick either the Old Testament or the New Testament reading, or maybe just the Psalm or the Proverb. It'd be a great place to start. But for the next five weeks, I'm going to simplify it even more. Let's just read one chapter a day from 1 John. There are five chapters, so you'll you'll work your way through the entire book, hundred and five verses. In one week. And if we do that over the next five weeks, you'll read through this short letter five times. And frankly, I don't think that's too, too much. You, you will spend more time reading the Journal Star, your favorite blogs, or your Facebook pages. Just, just give it a go for the next five weeks. Read prayerfully. Ask the, the author, the Holy Spirit, to actually illuminate and provide insight and and life change, because after all, what we want is not the menu, we want the meal. The meal of real life that Jesus said is yours, the rich and satisfying life. So let's pray that the author actually delivers the real meal. And then read expectantly, actually believe that Jesus is going to speak to you through its pages, uh, that, that he'll come to uh, touch you and challenge you and minister to you and change you, that you'll experience him. We're not looking for just an academic understanding. There is a, we we subscribe in general to the grammatical, hermeneutical, historic way of interpreting the Bible, that the original authors did mean one thing when they wrote it to one particular group of people. But the the neat thing about the Bible is that the Holy Spirit can take what, what was intended for one group of people and can apply it to our lives today. Thousands of years later, and it's a living word. And so let's ask the author, uh, to speak to us through the living word and expect that we actually meet him in the pages. Now, if you have not yet identified yourself as a Christ follower, we're, we're glad you're with us today, uh, and, and we would, uh, issue you the challenge to begin the adventure of reading the Bible if you haven't already done so. If you're a new, brand new believer, or you're just coming back to faith after maybe years of absence, then start the adventure of reading the Bible for yourself with an open and inquiring mind. And 1 John is a very manageable way to start reading the Bible because it's uh, short and impactful. If you're a growing saint, then I would say, you know, it's likely that you've read this letter before. But I encourage you to approach it as a living letter, knowing that there's something fresh in it for you this time through. And if you're a maturing saint, my age or above, or you've been in the faith for a long time, I'm going to encourage you to resist the notion that you've been there, read that. Because that's often how we approach the Bible. Ah, I've been through 1 John so many times. Maturing saints need to have a high tolerance for repetition in kingdom life, doing the same things over and over again without getting bored. So I'm going to challenge all of us, no matter where we're at, to be asking the question, do I really read the Bible prayerfully, expectantly? And if not, why not? Do I actually expect to meet Jesus in its pages, or do I read it to check it off my Christian to-do list and to relieve myself of guilt, the guilt that I might feel if, if I don't read it? Am I really expecting to grow and change because of the Bible? Am I really experiencing the real life that Jesus said is mine to experience? And if not, What might the Holy Spirit actually be nudging me to do as a result? Okay, the book of 1 John. For those that are unfamiliar with it, it's near the end of the New Testament. The author of 1 John is the Apostle John. John was the son of Zebedee. He was a fisherman by the Sea of Galilee. John's mother was Siloam. If, as suggested by john nineteen twenty five Salome was a sister to Mary, then the mother of Jesus, then Jesus and John would have been first cousins, which could explain the special place in Jesus' heart for John, who identifies himself in his own gospel chapter twenty verse two as the beloved or the one whom Jesus loved. His brother was James. And they were partners in a family fishing business with two other brothers, Peter and Andrew. John's family is likely very wealthy. We know that because they have household servants. Salome helped with Jesus' financial support and bought the burial spices. John was a personal acquaintance with the high priest who would have come from the upper crust. So it's likely that they were from a well-to-do uh family of privilege. John and his brother James were nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder. I don't think Jesus meant it complimentary. They probably had fiery personality and temperaments. And it's in the early days of of coming a disciple, John had dark moments of intolerance. In Mark 9, John said, we saw somebody casting out demons and we told them to stop because they're not in our group." Uh, Secondly, he he was full of vindictiveness. Luke 9 records that John was was saying once, should we call fire down from heaven to swallow them up, the the unwelcoming Samaritan villagers? And then he was filled with selfish ambition because he and, and James wanted those seats of special privilege in the coming kingdom. But John obviously changed, which gives me great hope. And it should you too that we don't have to stay the way we are. I love that about John's life story. How did he change? Well, in the first three years of actually living and walking and doing life with Jesus. Secondly, when he was filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And then thirdly, through just decades and decades of faithful, obedient ministry in the local church, there in Jerusalem, where he was the leader, Obviously, uh, according to, or according to tradition, uh, where he was caring for Jesus' mother post his uh, resurrection and ascension. John was a a leader in the church in Jerusalem, a pastor teacher, and he remained there until Jesus' mother's death, after which time John relocated to Ephesus, the, the, the heartbeat of the growing church, from where he wrote his gospel and the three letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And over the course of his life, John developed a reputation, uh, and then through history, of being referred to as the apostle of love. His tender concern for Christ's followers that were under his care is a, it can it can be seen clearly in the way he addresses his audience in the letter of 1st John Over and over, he calls uh, the readers, my dear children and my dear friends. So the good news, friends, is you are not destined to remain who you have historically been. John wasn't, and that's great news for all of us, that Jesus can change us. And really, many of us, that's, that's what we're longing for, isn't it? To become somebody different to break free of the things that hold us now, and the book of 1 John gives me great hope. Now, it's interesting to note that at the time of John's writing this letter, Christianity has been in the world about 60 to 70 years. John's gospel, the three letters, for 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation are the last five books of the New Testament to be written. Now, they're not necessarily in order chronologically, as I've indicated. By this time, John was an old man. Some guesstimate perhaps nearly a hundred years old. He had outlived all of those who had been friends and companions. And you know what? This changes things. I know because I've watched my parents, who are now age 86 and 87. Most of their close friends have died or have one spouse uh, that if still living, are sick, or maybe have Alzheimer's or dementia. Their friends are other widows or widowers. Uh, they've lost uh, many of their uh, siblings. My Uncle George is here today, and uh, they've lost four, five now, right? Um, six gone, six alive. George is my dad's brother. Um, you know, my parents meet every Saturday morning with a group of their friends at Panera, and that small group keeps getting smaller. I used to wonder when I'd eat Panera, I'd meet my brother Tim for, for coffee at Panera in, in Champagne. I'd see these little groups of older people every Thursday morning when we were there, and I'd often wonder, who are those old people? And then I realized, oh, they're my parents <laughs> and they're friends. And that small group keeps getting smaller. And it changes your perspective on what's important. Just this last Mother's Day, there were just a few of us at our house gathered for the, the celebration of that holiday. And mom wanted to document it with taking a couple of pictures. But I found it rather poignant and, and, and rather... Piercing, actually, when, as we're assembling the family, the few of us that were there to take a picture, she commented and said, I don't even know why we're taking this picture. No one's going to be, like, looking at it. Wow. That that was poignant. John, the apostle, was in the same position. Almost all of his friends had died. He was alone he now had the benefit of long reflection on what it was he wanted to say. And his particular emphasis is this. God is love, and we must love one another. Of all the things that John could say, this is what he did say. God is love, and we must love one another. St. Jerome tells the story about the apostle John, that in the declining years of his life, when he was old and weak, his disciples used to carry him to the church there at Ephesus, where he would repeat over and over again, my little children love one another. And then when asked why he did this, John replied, because it's the Lord's command, and when only this is done, it is enough. Wow. John is the apostle of love. And his greatest insight into the Christian faith is simply this. God is love. We must love one another. Now, specifically, John's letter was addressing a local situation in the churches under his leadership there in Ephesus. He wrote his letter to the Christians who were falling prey to the devil's temptations in at least three ways. The first is that Christians were actually fighting one another. And John was quick to, ob- to observe and declare, "He who hates his brother is still in the darkness. Secondly, there were Christians beginning to love the world again in jesus 's parable of the sower. These were those seeds that the farmer planted, then sprouted, and then they got choked out by lust, the deceitfulness of riches, and the cares of other things entering in and John was warning them of the tragic consequences. And then thirdly, there there was a growing division in John's churches. A group of believers had departed from the churches claiming to have special insight on the truth. Does this sound familiar? Tradition tells us that the leader of this movement was a man named Serinthus, and he embraced a false doctrine called Gnosticism, which simply means special knowledge or enlightenment. Uh, Revelation. The Gnostics saw matter as evil and the spirit as good. They believed that sin resided in the flesh. And so the Gnostics actually denied that Jesus was a real human being because then God would have identified with evil matter, the flesh. And so the Gnostics actually said Jesus only seemed to have a body. And since the body was evil, hey, it didn't matter what you did with it. And so it led to licentious, unholy, sinful living, and then factions and divisions and ugliness in the church. And John was writing to address these three uh, issues, these temptations, internal fighting, leaving uh, the love of God for the love of the world, and Gnosticism. And in his passionate and very personal appeal, John was earnestly trying to communicate three simple messages that we're going to unpack in the next weeks. First, love is the most important thing. Now in the Greek language, there are five different words that translate the English word love. But in English, we have one word, love, and we love hot dogs, we love potato chips, we love our dog or our cat, we love our job, we love our boyfriend, our girlfriend, our, our husband, or our wife, or our kids, or our grandkids. We love NASCAR. We love the act of love. We just love it all. And that can be very confusing in English, but not in the Greek so much, because you could select from one of five different words, and you could be very precise. And it's interesting that the word, or the form of it, that John chooses to use 62 times in his letter is agape. That's a transliteration of, of the Greek word. It, it's the God kind of unconditional, uh, not based in what others do to you kind of love. It's the God kind of love, the kind of love we see in Jesus as he walked. Not once does John use any of the other four Greek words for love. So above all, at the end, when it's all said and done, what matters most is that God is love and we're to love others. This is the banner cry of the New Testament. Paul, the apostle in 1 Timothy 1 says, the purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4.8 said, most important of all, continue to show deep love for others. It covers a multitude of sins. And James says, love your neighbor as yourself. So if we could summarize the message of the New Testament, it's that God is love and we're to love others. The second message that John is trying to communicate is is he's declaring that right belief, we call that orthodoxy, and right behavior, we call that orthopraxy, must both be present. Both are necessary. You've got to have belief and behavior. Neither is complete without the other. You see, it's not sufficient to just believe in Jesus or or his incarnation or the substitutionary blood atonement or his coming resurrection, our coming resurrection. You see, a lot of mean and ugly behaving people believe the right things. But on the other hand, it's not sufficient just to behave, you know, to be nice, to love other people and to have a moral life. The world's full of nice people who don't believe anything. You've got to have both, is what John is saying. The signs of truly belonging to Jesus are to believe and behave. And then thirdly, John is saying that regarding right behavior, orthopraxy, Christians always live in tension. Tension between equally universal Equally powerful beliefs or orthodoxies. So orthopraxy lives between orthodoxies. Your behavior lives between beliefs. Let me illustrate. And and we're going to explore this in a lot more detail in the weeks to come. I use the word tension because it's descriptive. In physics, the word tension refers to a, a force that pulls or stretches something. It can also indicate, uh, the actual stress that's created or the effect of forces pulling. So if you imagine in my, in my hands, this, this lovely screen door spring that I'm now stretching, you see it? When, when, when it gets stretched, stress is created, right? And it's like, sting, you know, the bigger the spring, the more damage it, can create when you when you let it go. Like you think of your garage door spring for for instance. <clears throat> in God's kingdom, right behavior is always lived in the tension of two equally universal, equally powerful truths. Truth seldom stands alone. Now, for Westerners who value logic and reasoning and argument and linear thinking and right and wrong, yes or no, black and white approaches to doing life, this concept is very challenging. It may be for you this morning. But let me let me just illustrate it a little farther. Imagine that we're exploring the requirements for sustaining life. On, on one end of that spring, as it's stretched, is the truth that we need water. But then on the other hand of that spring is the truth that we need food. Which is true. Yeah, both, right. We live in the middle of that tension. You can go a little longer without food than you can without water, but the truth is you have to have both, equally true, equal universal truths. We need both. Both are true at the same time. One is not true to the exclusion of the other one being true. We live in the radical middle of tension. Now, in the Bible, these equally universal, equally powerful right beliefs, truths, appear regularly. The kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of not God is not yet all the way here. We are saved by faith alone, not by works, lest any of us should boast. We are saved by faith that works. If your faith doesn't have works, it's dead. We are saved. We are being saved. We will be saved. God is faithful and loving and merciful. God is just and judgmental. God predestines all things. People have entirely free will. Now, in John, there's a lot of this dualistic language. We're going to discover it as we read these five chapters. Light, and darkness, truth and lying, love and hate, love of the world, love of the Father, life, death. What you say, what you show. Um, particularly John is talking about those who know God, those who don't know God. And one of the most prominent tensions that we're going to have to unpack is found in the issue of what to do with sin. In first John 1 8, we read, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and we're not living in the truth. One end of the spectrum. But then John, two chapters later, in chapter three, verse six, says, Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. Oh, so which is it? Do we sin? Do we not sin? (laughs) Which is the truth? They both are. We live in the radical middle of the tension of those two truths. They are equally true, equally powerful right beliefs. And so John's going to coach us about right living in the middle of those two powerful truths. So instead of reading 1 John and trying to decide which of the two truths on any of these dualistic frames do I decide is is the right one, which which end of the spring am I going to live on, which am I going to discover uh, is the right one, I'm encouraging you to discover how both are true and how we can live in the radical middle of tension. And so we're going to discover right behavior in the middle of right beliefs. I want to encourage you to think of the dualistic language in John, and especially the sin-don't-sin, we-sin-we-don't-sin language, as best understood in the, in the terms of kingdom tension. We're going to unpack that in the weeks to come. Well, friends, for centuries, the Bible has been used to browbeat and condemn and motivate by guilt sincere and penitent worshipers, and I, I hope to see that the Bible can actually equip us as listeners and practitioners with wings to soar and, and actually experience the rich and satisfying life that Jesus said he wants each of us to have. That will not be satisfied with eating the meat, the menu, but we'll, we'll give ourselves to dig deeper in the letter of First John and experience the meal of love and joy and peace and purposefulness and contentment. And that we'll find the Bible is a book that actually changes all of our lives. Lord, we're just so grateful that you didn't leave us alone, but you left us an inspired book. And, and God, I know people for, for centuries have found great value in, in the scriptures. And we pray, God, that in our time together, you would breathe life on this letter to, to where we are right here in central Illinois uh, today, and that we had experienced what you intended for us to experience. God, I pray thou as we give our, our hearts to you in the giving of gifts, that we demonstrate our, our trust in you to provide, and in the lifting of our hearts and hands in song, that you would take these for what they are, tokens that as your church family, we, we love you, and we want our lives to count for you in your name. Amen.